Well, this morning, we are going to take sort of a, a dive into a little bit of history. Um, one of the reasons I want to sit out here is we're going to look at quite a few maps. What I want to do today is to give you a very high-level, broad overview of uh, sort of the geopolitical world that Israel found itself in leading up to the time when Jesus would come on the scene and then in the few years after that in which the, the early church is, is growing and becoming the church. Um, one of the reasons for that is we're going to get ready to really look at the New Testament as a whole over the next almost a year probably. Uh, we're going to go sort of book by book and talk about the high points and see how they all work together. Uh, but it's really important, again, to have some historical background. Um, but, and, and that was the plan for this week. But as I was going through that over the last couple of weeks and thinking through what I really wanted to say, that historical context, I think, gives us uh, some context to, to face what and, and address what is going on in our current context. And so I hope that it serves two purposes. One, to give us a good footing and grounding to sort of launch into a study of the New Testament, um, but also some lessons that we can take from it for, for our own life today. Um, the scripture we're going to use today is coming from Luke, and this is the moment when Jesus is approaching Jerusalem uh, at the beginning of Passion Week. And this is, he's standing on the hill outside of Jerusalem looking at it, and he has this moment of, of a little bit of probably fear, but definitely lament over Jerusalem and the fact that they're, they're not gonna, they're, they, don't, they haven't gotten it and they're not going to get it. And, and so this is what we read uh, from Luke. This is uh, verses, or nine, or chapter 19, verse 41. It says, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children, within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So I'm sure that's a story that we're all familiar with. I hope today that we get some context for what's going on here and, and what is gonna happen after this moment. Um, I wanna start, and we're gonna go all the way back to the beginning, and that, that is the Exodus. So for Israel, the beginning of the state of Israel, the, the people of God is really that moment when they come out of Exodus, um, when Moses leads them out, they become a nation, God gives them the 10 commandments and they become a people in a way that they had not yet been up to that point. And when they get into Israel, we're looking here obviously at the area that's modern day Israel in the Middle East, um, they are 12 tribes. And what, here, what you see here is, is 12 tribes. I'll tell you right now, there's no quiz on this. We're gonna look at a lot of maps. I'm gonna throw some names and some dates at you. If you wanna write them down, great. Uh, what I really want you to do is just kind of sit back and listen to really what is the chaos that these people will suffer through for 1,500 years. Um, and, and I think that really will give us a, a, a good look into the mindset of these people. Um, and during this time, if you, if, if you know the history in, in the Old Testament, this is the time of the judges. There were 12 judges that would, would come up that we have stories about. Uh, judges is kind of a, a weird term for them. They were sort of tribal leaders that would pop up. And in many ways, they were the people that God was calling on to save Israel against the oppressors. A, a name you hear is the Philistines, obviously. If, if you remember the, the story of uh, Samson and Delilah, um, that, that's one of the, the powers, the regional powers that was pressing in on the tribes of Israel. And so God would raise up what, what were called judges to help lead the nation and save the nation from these powers. Um, and then in 1050 BC, we read that the nation, and we've talked about before, nation asks God for a king. And that was a time when we, we, we see those tribes become the nation of Israel. So there are what we call the United Kingdom. And this first happens under Saul. Saul obviously is followed then by David and his son Solomon. Um, and so they will all rule until about 922. So they have about 125 years that they are a United Kingdom. And as Israel looks back from this point on at their history, this is the moment when they think, oh, that's when we had it. Because as Solomon dies and Rehoboam, his son, comes to power, Solomon, we, we have a, a tendency, especially in our Sunday school classes, to think of the biblical characters as these great heroes of the faith. And that's not always true. So Solomon wasn't the greatest guy. He built the temple. We mentioned that before, Solomon's temple, the first temple that God had promised to David. Um, 
but he did that by conscripting essentially slave labor of his own people. So he forced his own people to work. Uh, we read later that he, as he becomes more powerful, he becomes an arms dealer and he's trading, you, you read he trade, trades chariots and horses and, and, and there are lots of things that Solomon does that aren't so great. And so when his son ascends to the throne, a lot of his policies, the Northern tribes, so the tribes that are up in the Northern part of here, so the, the Manasseh, which is the, the, this area right here, and so basically from here up, they all sort of revolt to a certain extent and they plead with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, to please reverse those policies and he refuses. And what happens is they split. And so what was a united kingdom becomes the Southern kingdom of Judah and the Northern kingdom of Israel. And so after Solomon, as you're reading through your Old Testament, when you read Israel, what we're talking about is this Northern kingdom and you'll read about Judah, which is this Southern kingdom. And so there's this period of 200 years where these two kingdoms exist and there's lots of strife and lots of problems. And there, this is, if, if you read the prophets, you'll read about prophets that are sent to Israel and to Judah to try to get the people of Israel, all the 12 tribes, back on track, back in right relationship with God. And hopefully they would reunite themselves as the nation they were supposed to be. But as we know from the history, that actually never happens. And after 200 years of that strife and division, right here is Israel, the Assyrian empire, which is, this is modern day uh, Iraq. This is modern day Assyria up here. Iraq sits over here. Um, the Assyrians come out of this area and they will conquer that Northern kingdom. And so the Northern kingdom will fall in 722. Um, this area right here, you can see Samaria on this map right here. And I apologize for those of you watching on Facebook, you're probably not gonna be able to see the details that those of us here are seeing, but Syria or Samaria is north of Jerusalem. And as we come to the New Testament and we read about all the strife between the Israelites and Samaritans, um, the Samaritans were the descendants of that Northern kingdom. And when Assyria conquers them, they begin to intermix. Um, and, and one of the reasons they were hated so much by the real Jews, the real Israelites in the Southern kingdom was that they made compromises. They sort of, they, they were seen as going against their faith by intermixing and assimilating within the Assyrian empire and the empires that would come after them. Now that's not to say all of them did, but the, the race of Samaritans. The other thing that happened is uh, right, right outside of Samaria, Samaria, that Northern kingdom set up another temple. So they felt that they were the proper seat of God. And so there was a, actually a competing temple in that area. So there was, a, there was religious, political, genetic uh, strife um, that happened between those two people. And, and it's coming out of this divided kingdom and then the, the subsequent conquering of Assyria. Um, 120 years after that, so the Northern Kingdom's gone, the Southern Kingdom, Assyria would extend its power below Jer Jerusalem, but the area of Judea remained under Israeli or Jewish control. And so it never fell to the Assyrian empire. It was able to sort of remain independent. However, after the Assyrian empire, the Babylonian empire comes. And so this whole area up here was the Assyrian empire. So Bab Babylon, which is down here, right there, uh, they, they come out of Babylon here and overtake the whole area of Assyria. They push south even more. They take over the area of the Northern Kingdom, which will be right in there. And they also will take Jerusalem and Judea. So at this point, Judea actually falls, the Southern Kingdom falls. Um, and this, this happens in, in a wave of three different exiles. And we've talked this a little bit before, but in 598, Babylon lays siege to Jerusalem and deports the first wave of Israelites to Babylon. So they're carried from Jerusalem and Judea here all the way over to Babylon here. And this begins the period of, of Babylonian exile. Um, a few years later, about 12 years later in 587, Babylon will actually come back again. They will destroy the temple and they'll take a second wave of exiles to Babylon. And then five years after that, they'll take a third wave. And, and what Babylon was doing was exporting all the leadership of Israel so that there was nobody left to rise up and revolt and try to exert themselves and, and become a free nation again. And so what was left was everyday Jewish people who were just struggling to, to get by, but the people that they saw as leadership had been taken from them. And that was one of the strategies that Assyria had deployed to a certain extent, but Babylon does effectively and all of the leadership is, is exiled to Babylon. And so that exists for about 60 or 70 years. And then Persia, so this is modern day Iran. And so our, we've zoomed out a little bit. 
from our, uh, from our map, right here, this red area right here, this is where it all comes from. Um, this is the area of Persia, and, and these subsequently lighter areas on the map are the stages in which the Persian Empire evolves. But you can see, obviously, it will eventually overtake the area that's the Babylonian Empire, which was the Assyrian Empire, and with it, Israel. And in the Old Testament, we read about the King, king Cyrus. King Cyrus is the Persian king. He's the king that is uh, ruling at the time that the Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonian Empire. And he is a good ruler, and, and Israel sees him in some way as a, as a, as a messianic figure, as a, as a sort of front runner of a messiah, because he, uh, he likes them, he understands their love for God, and he allows them to go back. And so King Cyrus will allow the exiles from Babylon to go back. And as we read through Ezra and Nehemiah, we read that there were three trips. So just as there were three sort of periods or phases to the exile, there are three phases of Jews who will come back. Not everyone will come back. Uh, a lot of them actually will stay. Um, and when we talk later about the dispersion, the diaspora, it's during these periods when the Jews were scattered, exiled, deported, um, that makes that happen but Cyrus will allow them to come back and they will be able to rebuild a temple. And then we read in Nehemiah by 444 BC, they, uh, Nehemiah comes back and builds a wall again. And that's a, that's a big moment for Israel and Jerusalem that around Jerusalem, there's a wall which offers them some protection and they are again a city, which is, is crucial and important. But things are not right at that point, as you can imagine, as, as we certainly know. Um, there, there are no 12 tribes. They're not back. They're still dispersed. They have no Davidic king. They're still under the thumb of the Persian empire. They're allowed to return to their worship and, and do the thing that they wanna do uh, in, in that respect, but they certainly are not a free nation. Um, the temple that they built was at that point, a pale comparison to the first temple. Um, and God has not returned as we've talked about in a number of, number of talks before. Uh, God does not return to the second temple in the way that he did in the tabernacle and the first temple at this moment when his Shekinah glory, his visible glory descends upon both of those structures. And so things are, are not right, despite the fact that many of them have been allowed to come back to the land. That lasts about a hundred years. And then Alexander the Great, if you remember him from uh, your history classes in high school, or maybe perhaps even in college, uh, he will conquer the whole area. Um, and so he will come out of Greece, right over in this area in Athens, and at, up to this point, everybody, obviously the, the empires that have existed have come, in, come from the east. He's gonna come from the west in Greece and he's going to overtake this entire area and establish Greco-Roman culture. Now, as a empire, as you see it here, from the moment that it overtakes Judea to the moment that it's going to break apart is, is a short period. Um, it's only a matter of a few years, but the impact that Alexander and his Greek counterparts and, and soldiers make on this area is severe. From this point on, this whole area will culturally be Greek. They will establish Greek towns all around Syria. As a matter of fact, there's one just east or west of Nazareth that Jesus would have grown up near. Most of those men and women would have been able to speak Greece, Greek as a, in, a, in addition to their, uh, their languages. It was only a half a day's walk, so they would have been able to walk into the town. And so Greek culture would have become a thing. So for 12 years, um, Greece as, as an empire would have, uh, would have ruled this area. And, and then a few years later, it's gonna break apart and it's gonna become this. And we have what, what is known as the Suclid empire, that yellow, the Ptolemaic empire is the blue. Um, this is obviously the area of Egypt. This is the area we've been talking about. But these, rule, these names are the names of Alexander's generals. They take over this area. So while it was the Greek empire for only a short period of time, for the next several hundred years, these two, these two kingdoms, the descendants of Seleucus and Ptolemy, are gonna battle over Palestine. And so the Israels are gonna be under this, this Greek influence. This whole area is gonna be under Greek influence from this point on. Um, and in 320, Ptolemy comes out of the south, out of the Egypt region, and he's going to take the area. And so Israel is going to exist under the Greek general, Ptolemy, and then his successors um, for quite some time, for 120 years. And then in 200 BC, 
the descendants of Seleucus, they're going to come down from the north and they're going to take it. But again, that's still Greek culture. That's still a Greek overlord uh, who's going to rule them. And then in 167, something happens. Um, up to that point, obviously, there's this battle for the area and, and they, they're constantly having a new empire, a new overlord that's going to rule over them. But his name's Antiochus Epiphanes. And again, it's a big name, you don't, it doesn't matter. But uh, in 167, he's going to come. He's, he's going to be the, he's the ruler of the Sucalid Empire. When he comes in, he uh, walks in and he desecrates the temple. And he sets up statues of himself and tries to institute worship of himself. And that doesn't go well. The Jewish people, despite hundreds of years of having been ruled by other empires, they're still a very proud people and they don't take kindly to that. Um, that actually happens on December 25th, what we celebrate as Christmas. Um, and that really sparks off uh, some national pride, some desire to fight back in a way that they probably had not yet done. And three years later to the day, on December 25th, um, in 164, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus and his family, uh, they get a bunch of revolutionaries together and they decide we're going to take back the temple and they do that. And if you know anything about the story of Hanukkah, that's that event. This is when the Maccabean revolt happens. They march in, they take the temple back. Um, and then over the course of about 20 years, they will expand. We're now into a tight picture, tight map of Israel. Um, they initially begin right here in Judea. And then subsequently, they will take all these different colors, all this whole area of uh, Israel. So the, the, the southern and northern kingdom, the area of Israel is now back under the control of Israel itself. Um, they had an ancestor named Hasmonea, and they take the name Hasmoneans. And so this is known as the Hasmonean dynasty. And this lasts for about 100 years. But um, despite the fact that it's this moment of sort of national pride and having taken back the land, they are once again Israel uh, for about 100 years. This again is not the way that they know it ought to be. Um, the Hasmoneans rule as uh, priest kings. And that's not, certainly not the way that God had set this nation up. There were to be uh, a nation of rulers. This is the Davidic line. Again, again, they're expecting a Messiah and a king to come out of David's line. But they had an entire tribe, the Levites, who were supposed to be the priests. And so for the Hasmoneans to come in and take rulership and, and be both kings and priests, this was, this was not good. And this actually caused a lot of questions to be asked. There were lots of uh, rabbis and, and Jewish teachers that were questioning what was going on and how this was actually playing out. Um, as time would progress, uh, as fathers had sons and, and more sons and more sons and the, the family pyramid gets larger, there are more claims to the throne and civil war starts happening. They start fighting amongst themselves. And after a hundred years of that, for 200 years, this area right here, so over here in the bottom right of our map now is the area of Jerusalem, but this blue right here is Rome. And as you can see, or I'll tell you is this is about 200 BC. So Rome for 200 years has been growing in strength and they will have marched across modern day Greece and they're marching towards Jerusalem. And so by 63 BC, 100 years into the Hasmonean dynasty, there's a bunch of internal strife and problems and chaos going on in Judea. Rome's able to just march right into Israel. Um, they take advantage of that civil war they walk right through the gates. There's really not a, really a, a big fight at this point because they're so weak, weakened by their own internal strife that they can't fight back. Rome is a formidable power, one that they probably haven't seen up until that point. Um, and whereas the Secludian leader had walked in and sort of desecrated the temple, the, uh, the general Pompey, Pompey, who was, is in charge of these forces, when he marches into Judea, he does something, he kind of takes that to the next level and he will actually march right into the Holy of Holies. So if you're familiar with the temple, there was an outer sanctuary, an inner sanctuary, and then at the very center was the Holy of Holies and that was, that was the place that God lived. And as the high priest would once a year go into, there, into that Holy of Holies to offer the sacrifice the day on the day of atonement, if you remember from your Old Testament history, no one could look upon God without dying. And so they would actually send him in with a rope tied around his ankle. So if he were to see God and die, they could pull him back out without having to. So this was the way that they, they saw and, and treated the Holy of Holies. But Ptolemy walks into town and just walks right in there. And so that does two things. One, it raises lots of questions about where's our God and what is actually going on here. 
But it also, from that moment on, Rome is the great evil in the, in the mind of Israel, right? Not only did they desecrate the temple, but Ptolemy had the gall to walk into the Holy of Holies to, come, to try to come face to face with God. And so they are now in a, locked in a, in a religious, not just a geopolitical struggle with Rome in a way that they had not yet. Up to this point, um, even throughout the exile, the Jews were largely allowed to maintain their, their religion. Um, and, and this moment of Ptolemy entering the Holy of Holies struck at that in a way that had, had not before. Um, this is the area of, of the Roman Empire. And so what's left out east, we'll get to in a second. Uh, there is another dynasty that's out there, but for this point on, up until obviously Jesus and, and beyond that, Rome is the one that, that rules the area. And, and from that point on, from, from that 63 BC on, there, there's lots of writing, lots of hope. We, we have, again, we have a lot of the, the writing in, in the form of the Talmud and, and a lot of the, the, the scrolls that they've left behind. Um, they're hoping for essentially another Maccabeus. They're hoping for this revolt, but nothing ever comes. All they get are rulers that will, will kind of rise up and they make all sorts of compromises with Rome to get the power over the area. Um, and so Israel is set up just as a client state. So they, they are definitely under the thumb of Rome. They're, to some extent, Rome's, Rome's procedure is to go into an area to bring their gods and their worship and sort of assimilate themselves, but they don't require like 100% reversal of people. And so they allow the people that they conquer to maintain some of their culture. Um, and in the case of um, Israel, when the temple had been desecrated by the, the secludian leader earlier and they revolted. That was what caused the Maccabean revolt. Rome in some ways learned from that and, and recognized the, the extent to which that this is gonna actually be a problem. And they allowed Israel to continue to worship their God. Um, and lots of the other places within the Roman empire, you were, they were required to, to worship Caesar as their God. Um, they actually allow Israel not to do that, but they are to offer sacrifices and pray for Caesar in their temple. And so that was the compromise that was made. Um, and, and, and every leader of, Rome, of this area made that compromise with Rome and, and various other ones throughout the period. Um, up until the point of 43 BC, the guy that's leading at that point, the, the client king, his name is Antipater and he dies and he has two sons. One is Herod, and one is Fazil. Um, Herod's a name, obviously, we know from our stories. And we're now into history that actually is showing up within our, our New Testament. Um, in 40 BC, this is the other empire that's growing out here, all right? So they, you can see, they've not taken, Rome owns all this, rules all this. This is the Parthian Empire. So this is the empire that has taken over the Babylonian and then the Greek area. And there is a, a guy who's a descendant of the, the Maccabeans within the Hasmonean dynasty line. And he decides he wants the power back. And so he actually goes to the Parthian empire and says, hey, I'm gonna pay you to come and take it back for me. And so they do. And so the Parthian empire comes in and for a brief short period, um, they will take over and install this Hasmonean descendant as the ruler. When that happens, Fazil, who was the ruler of Judea, he commits suicide rather than giving up and Herod runs away, he runs to Rome. And so he runs to Rome and over the course of a couple of years convinces the Roman council um, or the, the powers in, in Rome that they need to go take it back. And then in 38 BC, throwing out a lot of dates, you're probably numb to dates at this point, but we're marching towards Jesus. So now we're about 40 years before Jesus is coming on the scene. Rome will send Herod back with uh, quite a number of soldiers. He's gonna meet a couple of legions. A legion has about four to 6,000 troops in it. He's gonna meet a couple. He's gonna be sent with about 30,000 more. So with about 45,000 Roman troops, he's gonna march down through the north here. And he's gonna take the area of Galilee. And over the course of two years, he's gonna march down and lay siege to Jerusalem. He's gonna take it back. And when he does, he takes over the entire area of Israel once again. He will go and find a female descendant of the Hasmonean empire and marry her. So he marries a Hasmonean princess in order to align himself with that dynasty, just to try to help say, hey, I'm, I'm now in that line. So to stave off another Hasmonean coming up and trying to take over. And then he will systematically execute every other 
Hasmonean descendant. Um, and as a result, he's known as Herod the Great, right? Because he then takes over rule. He is married to the one remaining Hasmonean uh, survivor. And this area that's green here is the, the area that he rules under the Roman Empire. This is the area of Herod the Great. And Herod, his biggest uh, achievement was building that second temple into something that was kind of gaudy. It was, he, he employed slave labor and he built this ornate thing that was more a temple to himself than it was to God. He would stamp his name in every brick that went into the temple because every, he wanted his name on it. Um, he, he was full of himself. He was not exactly the, the best ruler that Israel could have had. Um, and then in 4 BC, Herod the Great dies and his sons will take over. Uh, his son, Herod Antipas, is the Herod that we read most about in the New Testament. He's the one that will behead uh, John the Baptist. Um, and so for about 10, 10 years from the time that Herod dies until 6 AD, there is this sort of client state um, relationship between Israel and Rome. But after 10 years of that and sort of the strife that's going on, um, the Roman Empire decides that they're going to make it an official area of, or precinct of, of Rome. And that's when the, the census comes along. And so in, in making Judea an official province of Rome, all right, so this is the area of Judea, right? These are the actual provinces that, that Rome um, has. Prior to this point, Syria, or the, Rome had sort of ruled it out of Syria. So the, the prefect sat up here and sort of tried to controlled Jerusalem and Judea from the north. And they decided that's not working well. So they actually create Judea into its own province and they establish uh, prefects. There would be a series of them. The fifth of them um, was Pontius Pilate, who we know well, obviously, from our stories. Um, in 6 AD, however, when they institute this census, just as when... Um, their temple had been desecrated and they were asked to worship the secludian empire or, empire or emperor. This doesn't go well. And a guy named Judas of Galilee, so he's in the northern part of Israel, he rises up with a, a whole revolution and leads a revolt, which is promptly put down. And they're all executed, crucified across the north. But what that did was set off an entire revolutionary fervor within the area. And he was seen as the first real Messiah candidate. And in the brief research that I, was, that I was able to do in the time before today, I was able to find 40 more people who over the years have raised, been raised up and claimed to be Messiah. The most recent was in the 1990s. Right, so this is still going on, that people are, are claiming to be the Messiah. Um, but Judas the Galilean, he actually shows up in Acts. There's this, this moment when Gamaliel, the, the uh, Pharisee, Gamaliel is giving a speech and he's talking about the early church and the Christians that are around. And he says, if it's of God, you, can't, you won't be able to do anything about it. But if it's not, it's gonna go the way of the earlier sort of messianic things. And, and Judas the Galilean is one of the ones that he mentions. Um, but th that certainly did not go well. Like I said, it was put down with Rome very quickly, but it did spark as an entire movement of revolt. Um, and it was that, that event that makes Rome want to put a thumb on Israel. And so they will install these prefects. They station uh, an entire legion, these red squares with the yellow numbers. Right here is the six, 16, number 16. That's actually the 10th legion. So 6,000 soldiers at that point are placed in Jerusalem and the surrounded areas. And so from that moment on, now we have this military presence in a way, you know, in your face, in the streets every day as you're walking to the synagogue or to the to the market as a Jew, you now have Roman soldiers on the corners, okay? You are now officially part of the Roman empire. Um, and from that point on, Judea becomes more and more unstable as Rome continues to try to exert its authority. The Jews try to fight back because they refuse to worship or, or be put under the authority of the Caesar of the Roman empire. They wanna worship their God and only their God. Um, and there are a number of skirmishes that will pop up. Lots of crucifixions happen as a result. That was the way Rome dealt with people who tried to revolt was they put them on a cross um, until 30 years after Jesus, the high priest at the time, his name is Eleazar. 
He convinces Amur of his other rogue priests that are offering sacrifices in the temple for Rome to pray for Caesar. They decide they're going to stop doing that. And they say, enough's enough. We're not doing that anymore. And Rome sees that as an act of war. And that sets off what's known as the first Roman or Jewish Roman war in 66 AD. In 70, uh, the emperor will send his son Titus with three legions, so 25 to 30,000 troops descend upon Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. This is when the temple's destroyed. Um, for 70 years after that, there's continued chaos in the area. Israel still is, is a people. Um, there, over that period, there are four more legions that are sent. So now we're approaching 80 to 100,000 Roman troops in the area. Uh, and in 132, this guy named Bar Kokhba, was ra- he raises 400,000 Jewish men and women, mostly men, of course. Um, a lot of them come back from the diaspora and he re- leads a massive revolt. Um, and he, he's gonna lead that out of the Northern part and he's gonna march down towards Jerusalem to take back uh, the area of Israel. Um, they had substantial initial success. They were guerrilla warfare. So the way we fought the Revolutionary War is the way they fought this. They, they didn't march legions out into the field to fight them. They attacked small groups here and there and they inflicted some heavy casualties and had some success. But in 135, the then emperor, his name was Hadrian, says enough is enough. And he will send his, one of his primary generals, his name is Julius Severus. He's gonna send 10, 10 legions, which is another 60,000 troops. So we're now well over 100, probably 150 to 200,000 armed, trained Roman soldiers going up against a few hundred thousand Jewish farmers. And as you can imagine, that's not gonna end well for them. Um, This is a sad day in the history of, not that all of this is a little bit sad for Israel, but um, this is, some scholars and historians will say this this is a moment of genocide. They will march in with their hundreds of thousands of troops they will slaughter 580,000 Jews. They will destroy every town and village, 90, or I'm sorry, 40 fortified towns and 985 villages. They literally burn to the ground. Every Jew they find, they crucify. Many of them will escape and run away. Those that survive, they will sell into slavery. After this point, there is no more Israel. There is no more Judah. There is no more Judea. Hadrian literally wipes it off the map. What was Judea is now Syria, Palestine. Israel's gone and the, and the Jewish people and the nation of Israel will not be in that area. It will not be a center of their politics, of their life or their worship again ever until 1949 when the UN decides to recognize the state of Israel. Israel's gone. So I'm gonna go back to our scripture haven't gone through all that. I want to reread this. Now that you know what happened. If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Reads a little different now, doesn't it? Maybe you knew that the, the temple would be destroyed, um, but what is coming for them because they have hardened their hearts to such an extent is complete and utter destruction and annihilation as a state. They will flee. Jews, of course, will go all over the world. It's not like the Jewish people are gone. But as far as the nation, the 12 tribes that were called out of Egypt at the Exodus, they are no more. And so one of the questions that we have to ask is why, right? Why, why did they not recognize Jesus? Why do you think they didn't recognize Jesus? Yeah, they were looking for a king, right? So, I mean, think about it. They're looking for another Judas Maccabeus. They're looking for a, a revolutionary. This is, this is what they have in their immediate past somebody who rise up to overthrow this Roman empire. Um, to put it very succinctly, they were looking for power. As they look in their history, it's, it's a little ironic actually, they look back at their history and they think about their high point and they think about the, the unified kingdom under David and Saul and Solomon. 
And that was, that's the thing that they're, they're holding out as, if, I mean, if, if we're gonna be the blessed people of God who, who are gonna bless the entire world, how do we do that if we're not our own people, right? We have to be our sovereign state in order to be able to do that. Um, ironically, it's, it's that period where God was actually not happy at all to do that, right? God wasn't happy with the nation for asking for a king. He reluctantly tells Samuel to install Saul as a king. Um, and as soon as that starts to break apart, the entire history of Israel is just utter chaos. They are, at, no point, at no point does Israel look like that Greek empire or that Roman empire or the Persian empire or the Babylonian or the Assyrian, like never. Yet here they are in the, in the first century as Jesus comes onto the scene as, as the Messiah, that's what they have in their mind, right? They have, they have those empires bearing down on them and they look out and they say, that's what we're supposed to be. And so that's what they want. And that's what they're praying for and expecting. And when they talk about a Davidic king and the coming Messiah that should be that, they're looking for, and it actually reads in the Talmud, it says that they expected political unrest culminating in a war. That was what they were all talking about. This is, this is revolution, grassroots movement, a raising of hundreds of thousands of people like Bar Kokhba will do in 135 that will ultimately lead to their demise, utter, utter destruction. That's what they were looking for. Um, and expecting, and after that would come this, t- this period of sovereignty, peace, happiness, reign of God through them over the world. Um, but when they looked at Jesus, what they, they saw, what, what did they see? Like, if you look at Jesus and what Jesus did and said, and, and the fact that he dies on the cross, how is that your Messiah? That is complete and utter failure. Right? You just, you're just another Judas Maccabeus or, or revolutionary that rose up and Rome crushed. You died on a cross. There's no way you're our Messiah. There are, as I said at the beginning, a couple of reasons that I wanted to sort of rehearse that history with you. Um, one of them is, is, is this question, like what does it mean for God to use Israel? Like Israel was his instrument, but his instrument was under constant rule and domination. His instrument was never in a position of power. Certainly not any sort of world dominating power. Um, God never uses a powerful nation, never did, if, if we're taking Israel to be the model. With the exception of that very brief window under the, the United Kingdom and those three kings, they were never, never what they would hope to have been. And then we, we take the words of Jesus, who, who we definitely as Christians take as the Messiah, and we, we read about his reversal of power and the, the ways that we need to not seek power and, and serve the least of these, that those are first or last and last are first and, and those sorts of teachings from Jesus. And we realize that what he's talking about and the way that God actually works is the absolute opposite of what was expected. And that's why they missed it. In the year 300 or shortly thereafter, the emperor Constantine, of course, will make Christianity the official religion of Rome. And all of a sudden, what happens? In some ways, what Israel expects happens for Christianity, right? That Roman empire that rules the world now is Christian. All of a sudden, the people of God are in those positions of power. And there are lots of questions to begin, begin to ask about that, given what Jesus has said, given the way that he had, God had used Israel. Uh, and certainly now, 100 or 1,700 years later, uh, looking back at that period and, and what happened with the church and what's happened since, there are lots of questions about whether or not that was a, actually a good thing. Um, it certainly helped to grow the church and, and it was good from that standpoint. But the question that we have to ask is, is the same question that Israel was asking under sort of that Hasmonean dynasty and the Herodian dynasty is, I don't know if that's the way the, the church is supposed to exist. The people of God, should we relate to and should we be the ones that have that level of power, right? How does God actually want us to exist as a church within the geopolitical world. Um, and part of the struggle that we feel as a modern, particularly American church, is that for so long, the church has had that power, right? We say that we're a Judeo-Christian nation. We are and have been for a while now the most powerful nation on the world. Um, and so we've, we've actually been living in the dream world of the Israelis for a long time, or the Jews for a long time, right? We've, we've been that nation as a people of God. Um, and, and we start to see that unraveling, 
right? I mean, that's no story, right? You, you know that, like the, the, the Christian world is shifting, right? Our, our nation as, as a Christian nation, we, we now question, well, well, are we? Some ways we question, were we, right? But we have to ask those questions about ourselves, but it's certainly not Christian in the way that a lot of us, a lot of us grew up with um, or, or want it to be. And so we have, we have lots of questions. The ground has definitely shifted beneath us. Um, and a lot of ways, as we look around today, I, as I look around, I see a lot of the church scrambling to hold on to that power, scrambling to hold on to political seats, scrambling to legislate what we think is the way life should be. Um, and I'm not making a judgment as to whether that's right or wrong, but let's, what I'm asking us to do is step back and see things for what they actually are. Um, in the first century, under all of that pressure, Judaism had fractured. And we read about two of those, two of the sort of schools of Judaism that had popped up, particularly in the New Testament. Those were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the elite who made the compromises with Rome in order to retain the temple. And so the Sadducees, Sadducees were the ones that were responsible for temple worship. They were the aristocracy, the elite of the, the Jewish people. And they were the ones that were willing to do kind of whatever Rome said they needed to do in order to stay there. Because for them, there were two things. One, the temple was the seat of where they worshiped their God. And two, temple was, and, and ordering and running the temple was how they exerted their power, right? If, if, you were, if you ran a temple, you were the ones in control. The others, the Pharisees were a more populist movement. And they, we, we have sort of this idea that Pharisees were like overtly religious and they were all about controlling everybody. And, and they were, but the reason for that was they believed that it was in the purification and the returning to right living. And when, when Israel could get its act together, that's when the Messiah would come. And so their religious intolerance and strictness was all about preparing the nation for the time and hastening the time when Messiah would come. Um, but they were very much a sort of a populist sort of purity movement. There were two others that were, that you've probably heard of it. One was the Essenes. They were the group that said, forget it, <laughs> we give up. We're just gonna go to the desert and live and worship God. And that's exactly what they did. They went and they lived in caves in the desert. Um, they're sort of the front runners of what would become the Christian desert fathers and the, the monastics, the monks. Um, and then the, the final group that would pop up during this period, this sort of between, the, during the Roman occupation in particular are known as the Sicarii. This is the, the zealots. And if you know the story, Sicarii means dagger men. They were assassins. They, they, these were the guys that took up arms and they would wander through the streets and anyone who made any compromise with Rome, they would literally walk up, shank, almost like a prison scene. They would stab them with their daggers and they would move on before anybody knew what happened. And so they were violent revolutionaries. Um, they, were the, they were the inheritance, they were the direct descendants of Judas, the first Judas Maccabeus, uh, or sorry, um, Judas of Galilee. Um, they were sort of what became of that movement, that violent revolutionary movement. Um, and they were what sparked off the revolution in, in addition to the temple priests saying no more sacrifices that would ultimately lead to their destruction, right? But we see, this is, this is where we need to step back and say, okay, we see that in, you know, 2000 years ago, like in what way are we reliving that? And I think if we can take a deep breath and step back and sort of think critically about ourselves, we see a lot of this playing out right now, right? Um, I, I see daily, I see Christian leaders um, trying to make compromises with power in order to retain some semblance of influence, uh, whether that's a politician or uh, a voice in some way in the public sphere. Um, we as American Christians have a long history of uh, a purity culture, of uh, substituting a moral code and right living and, and ways of living and things we should and shouldn't do for a relationship with Jesus. Uh, I mean, that comes from the Puritans and the pilgrims. We were founded in some way based on, on sort of that ethic. Um, and it's not that we shouldn't live right. I'm not saying that. The problem is when that's what we focus on in, in lieu of uh, right love and relationship with God. Um, and we certainly have seen those who just sort of give up in the way that Essenes do. And it's kind of, they go and they buy a farm and just, I'm just gonna live out on the farm and I'm gonna start a commune. Um, and then certainly, uh, in the history of Christianity, we can see plenty of violent movements in which 
we're gonna take up swords and arms and we're going to bring God's will to the world through violence. Um, and, and to the extent that we would be inclined to take up any of those positions as a priority in our lives, I think we make Jesus cry a little bit. Um, the truth is we're, we're in many ways retelling the same story over and over again. And as we near November and the coming election, these, these voices are getting louder. These positions become more entrenched, um, not only political positions, but sort of the, the ideologies that we're talking about here uh, are, are becoming more and more prevalent. Um, and, and I guess I wanna be really clear about this statement that be aware that politicians are asking you to make compromises with them in order that we, the Christian church, remain in power. Um, we're being asked to make those compromises so that we can retain our influence. And we think, I, I mean, I'm not gonna name names today. If you wanna have conversations after this, that's fine. But we, I, we literally turn on the news and we, I see evangelical leaders, church leaders talking about this. And if you step back and see what happened in the first century, you can look at it and see, oh, that actually maps right on to that way of thinking. Um, what I'm not saying is don't vote. I'm not saying how you should vote. I'm not gonna stand up here and do that to you at all. I, I don't believe that I, that's my role. Um, we do live in a democracy, which means that in a way that never before we have a voice. Um, I mean, if you think about someone living under an empire or a monarch, like you don't have a say really, right? You just have to follow Jesus and do your best. We, we have a say. And so I would encourage you to prayerfully consider the way you would vote. Um, but more importantly, um, prayerfully consider the way that we approach this whole discussion and situation. Um, we are asked in many ways to be putting our faith into our faith leader or our, our political leaders in a way that is not good, is not healthy. Um, we're being sold a line that the church's success depends on who sits in office. I have heard those very words in the last couple of weeks, that if this candidate doesn't win or that candidate doesn't win, the church is in trouble. I hope you don't believe that. The church has never depended on who's in power. It's never been true. It wasn't true for Israel and it's never been true for the church. The, remember the moment that Israel becomes the nation state and a power is the moment that God's a little upset with. And it's at that moment that the prophets start coming. Samuel is the, the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. After him comes Nathan and a series of other prophets that we read about. And then all of a sudden it becomes so important that they begin to write their own books. And so we have a whole section in our Bible that's the prophets. And it's, it's the moment when Israel starts seeking nation state and power and influence that God really starts sending prophets and saying, come on, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me, you're, you're missing the point. And then all leads to this moment when Jesus stands outside of Jerusalem and weeps because they've gone so far astray and he knows what's about to happen and ultimately they'll be, they'll be destroyed. I think in a lot of ways, Ameri the, the American church as a whole uh, and individual Christians and myself at times even, uh, we are missing Jesus because we want influence and we want power. We want to be able to set the agenda and we're missing Jesus. And in lots of ways, the, the words of all of those prophets, if you could summarize the prophets, it would be in what John the Baptist says as he comes onto the scene. He says, repent for the kingdom is near. And we need, we need to hear those words. We need to be constantly reminded of those words, especially as we come into what it will be the most contentious time in our society, certainly politically, when we are inclined to take up a position and see the person sitting in the pew with us because they take up the other side as the enemy. There will be fights amongst us here, certainly on Facebook. I mean, don't, don't even bother getting on Facebook right now, right? It's just argument after argument after argument, because we're all fighting for our political ideology and we forget Jesus, we forget the church. We forget that more important than who sits in the office is what we do here. What happens on November 3rd pales in comparison in terms of importance 
to what happens here. What we decide to do on November 3rd and what happens on November 3rd matters very little in comparison to what we decide to do today, tomorrow, November 4th, 5th, 6th, and every day after that as God's church. The fate of the church does not rest in political power. The fate of the church rests in the decisions we make. Will we be faithful to Jesus? Will we be faithful? Will we look past these political divisions? Will we recognize that God's truth and Jesus is calling us to something else? That we need to engage that political process prayerfully, thoughtfully, but understand that our hope does not lie there. It never has, it never did, it never will. And to the extent that we put it there, we're missing it. We're missing Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for, first and foremost, your son, your Messiah that you have sent to us um, that has allowed us to come together as your church, that has allowed us to come back into right relationship with you, to be forgiven of the sins that we commit on a daily basis. And we just thank you and praise you for that truth and that reality. We ask as we go forth from this place in our lives, um, especially right now when most of our interactions with other people are in an, in an online environment, which is much more easily prone to contention and discord and fighting um, and, and much easier to leave civility behind. We ask that we would enter conversations, whether they're political or otherwise, uh, with your love for other people that we remember that our allegiance is first and foremost to you and to your church, to our brothers and sisters who sit here and in the other churches in our town, that regardless of political affiliation, they are our brothers and our sisters, and that the reconciliation of the world to you relies on our being the church in this world over and above any decision made at a ballot box. And so as we go forth in our lives, we ask that you help us to have that perspective, to obtain and retain that perspective on what is going on, that we might put you first. And we, well, we do, may do so always. It's in your, in your name and the power of your spirit, we ask for your wisdom and your guidance. Amen.